Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Roy Silverstein, who is an engineer based out of San Diego, and he runs a studio called Rarefied Recording. And in this chat, we get into a really interesting conversation all about Roy's journey to owning his studio and to going full time in the industry. And I think that Roy's story is very similar to a lot of people's stories of having a good paying day job but also having this true passion for audio production and wanting to be in the studio business and struggling with the golden handcuffs of having a nice job. And I know that a lot of people are really trying to figure out how to make that transition work and what things they need to prepare themselves for so that they know when the right time to jump all in is. And so in today's interview, Roy definitely gets into his story and shares a lot of great advice as to how he did it and some things that you need to be aware of if you're going to start your own studio in order to feel like you actually made the right decision. So Roy gets into some really great detail and he shares some amazing tips all about starting your studio, marketing it, and also keeping track of your metrics, which I know for some people like... Some of us aren't very analytical people, but when you hear Roy explain how he uses metrics in his business, I think it's a really important thing that you need to pay attention to if you want to be successful in this industry. Because it's not just about having the audio skills and being able to create great mixes. It's about actually being able to sustain yourself and make a proper living. And to do that, you need to have a little bit of a business sense. And Roy definitely gets into some great tips as to what you should be paying attention to so that you can be successful. Now, beyond talking about running your own studio, we also get into a really interesting conversation all about creating depth in your mixes. And we talk about how to use reverbs properly so that they're not creating mud in your mixes and how to make your mixes sound exciting using things like automation and parallel processing and a whole bunch more. So I think you're going to get a ton of really great tips from this episode. So let's just jump right into it. Roy Silverstein, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. For people who might not be familiar with you and who you are, what you do, can you give us a background on all that and how you got into music and all the cool stuff you're up to? Okay. Yeah. Um, I am Roy Silverstein. I am the owner and chief engineer at Rarefied Recording in San Diego, California. Um, my whole kind of journey through this started back when I was probably about 16. I grew up in um, Evanston, Illinois. It's just north of Chicago. Um, and uh, I was, you know, playing music with my friends in the basement. And this was like the 90s. So it was the whole exciting time of Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and all that alternative rock and so forth. And so we were kind of like emulating those people. And um, yeah, you know, just trying to do the band thing but like we wanted to record ourselves and we literally just had like this like dictaphone type of thing that my <laughs> stepfather used for his notes because he was a psychiatrist and um he would like just speak into that and someone would like you know type it up as notes then we were trying to use that to record which sounded terrible <laughs> um <laughs> but, but luckily um we all start somewhere 
Yes. Luckily, the drummer's dad was a musician, um, and he had a four-track, which he wasn't using for some reason. Um, so it was a cassette four-track, um, and and the drummer brought it over, and I kind of just kept it. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna figure this out." And I literally it was a Tascam Porta Two or something like that, and I literally just read the manual like very carefully. It was a it was a pretty good manual. And and started recording uh, initially, kind of just whatever you know, my own songs and and the band I was in kind of broke up. But like me and uh and the main songwriter Joseph Mahalka, Joe Mahalka, he he and I kind of did a, our own version of of the songs, kind of that we were working on with this this band that we we had started. And so we kind of did a little recording project in in high school. Um, and we we made some tapes and and um sent you know just gave them out at school and stuff like that. So it was you know a very DIY time. Like I had like the laundry room set up as kind of a control room. <laughs> like my <laughs> uh, I just somehow figured out how to use my like stereo system, which is one of those like Japanese like Iwa like you know du- dual cassette CD. I think I had CD at the time um fm AM radio like and it had an aux input and i figured out how to like connect the four track to the aux input and like had the speakers as my monitors and of course had some crappy headphones too and um bought some crappy mics and yeah just had the basement there set up as like a makeshift studio and um yeah just started recording stuff then and starting to figure it out totally kind of on my own um and uh i don't know Somehow I figured out like enough to like buy like an Alesis compressor and like a an art multi effects thing and um, yeah I recorded various things including a band I wasn't even in um, and just got bit by the bug of recording and just loved it. That's um, amazing. Yeah, but for whatever reason, um, uh, instead of going to recording school, um, I decided I would. I would do this program at the University of Miami that is called, they call it audio engineering, um, but it's really electrical engineering with a specialty in audio. So that was kind of unique because I had like the kind of chops, I guess, in math and science and stuff like that to to do the kind of electrical engineering stuff. And then I had the interest in audio. So I don't know. I just figured that might be a good Fit. For me, I was interested in the, the technical side of things. Um, so I wanted to learn more. And, and so I went to that program and, uh, yeah, just learned a whole bunch, of course, about uh, very technical things, all the basic, you know, electrical engineering stuff. But then, you know, we had workshops on audio circuits and we had digital signal processing stuff and learned a lot about digital audio, of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, even one of our professors, Ken Pullman, was like wrote like this book called like Principles of Digital Audio. He like wrote the book, so like, his <laughs> tests were crazy because we basically had to like regurgitate his book to him. <laughs> it's like <laughs> answers to the test. It's just like your your wrist would be in major pain after his test because. <laughs> um, so yeah, I did that program. I mean, it's a cool program. There they have there's a sister program in the School of Music because what I did was in the College of Engineering and it was very technical, you know, electrical engineering 
there's this, this, this the sister program is called music engineering and it was in the school of music and that was more uh, more about recording but you had to have like a principal instrument and all that stuff which I, I was a musician but not i didn't i never liked practicing and <laughs> you know what i mean um so yeah but that program that music engineering program has seen some pretty big engineers come through it like andrew sheps and joe barisi and stuff like that um so it's pretty cool um so yeah i don't know i got out of that program um and I ended up getting a job at Qualcomm in San Diego, which is, I didn't know anything about Qualcomm or San Diego or anything, but I was like, it's a job. It's related to audio. I was going to be working with the audio systems group. Um, and basically I was involved in um, designing audio chips for cell phones. So that was like my main gig, which was cool because it paid well and it allowed me to continue this passion of recording on the side and actually buy some things and um, save some money, which after like 10 years added up to a fair amount. And I was able to like buy some property and actually hire a, a studio designer named, named Wes Show. And uh, I was able to do a build out of like a proper studio because I had been doing all this home recording stuff, you know, like in San Diego, I'd set up a, house i called it the habitat it was just a cool house um that i kind of found myself in <laughs> through happenstance and uh that was awesome but it was on like a big street and there was all these buses going by and <laughs> you know you just get to a certain point where you're just like ah i can't i can't work this way or i you know, i'm limited like i couldn't i knew i was limited by the fact that there wasn't proper acoustics of the control room which was just a bedroom which i you know treated a little bit yeah i mean that i guess that's kind of uh i mean that's how most people would start i guess you know trying to do something at least these days like trying to start something in your own home and yeah dealing with all the problems and fun stuff of traffic and like yeah. just poor construction and all sorts of stuff like that, that gets in the way right <laughs> yeah I, I was literally on broadway it was like a big street <laughs> you know and and like you know there would be emergency vehicles coming down and occasionally like it would work out it'd be awesome like oh that was perfect timing that that siren in the background sounds so cool and it's perfect but most of the time it was not <laughs> cool <laughs> how many of those sirens did you keep in your recordings <laughs> probably one or two only out of hey, all hey, that's even ones. more than i thought so <laughs> yeah um so yeah i did this big build out um and uh it was like i'm just gonna do this i don't you know I, I just love recording so much and I was I was doing it as a side gig basically, but um I I just wasn't sure where it was gonna go. But uh after building the studio, um I mean just organically what happened was uh especially the, the other engineers were were contacting me because I had like a basic social media presence about the studio and so they were finding me and they were like, Hey, that's an awesome place. Can I come and do some work there? So I was getting some other engineers like pretty quickly in here um, while I was still at Qualcomm, which was um, cool because, yeah, the, the studio was just sitting there. Yeah. And then uh, that got the ball rolling besides, of course, what I was doing mostly on the weekends. Um, after a couple of years, I was like, man, the calendar's getting kind of full. I, I don't know. I think I can try this as a full-time gig. And so it was like in 2015, I I cut the corporate cord and just... I'm um, just full-time studio guy. That's amazing. 
there's a lot to unpack in that story that I'd love to dive deeper into. But uh, um, I'm curious to know, like going to that technical school, you know, that audio engineering program, I'm sure that a lot of that information that you learned has definitely translated to working in the studio as well. Like, were, were you guys actually, did you ever do any recordings there or was it like very much like the theory and the electronic side of it? We did do some recordings okay. too. There were some classes in the, they have a studio on campus and there were some classes where you would go and record and learn more about recording specifically. Yeah. That's cool. But I yeah. imagine like having that technical knowledge would really come in handy in the studio. And, you know, a lot of people would say like, you know, that's a great way into a studio as a, as like a tech or something like that, you know, having that kind of background. Totally. Um, yeah, no, I found it very valuable. Um, you know, just, just simple troubleshooting, which, um, sounds simple, but like, um, you know, cause I have a lot of engineers who come through here and, they, they run into some kind of technical issue and they a lot of times they'll call me and they're just lost. They're just like, I don't know, I'm not getting any sound, you know, or so this is happening. And I, I'm just like, I come in and part, part of it is because I know my studio so well, but another part of it is just that I understand signal flow so well and like what, what that problem probably could be. And like, I solve the issues so fast, which is handy, of course. Um, sure. when, I'm, when I'm engineering as well, it's very handy. Um, I can, I can figure out workarounds or, or whatever is happening. I can, you know, fix it. And then if there's something that actually is broken, like I can at least take an initial look at it, um, and be like, oh, well that resistor looks burned out. Okay. I, I can replace that. I got my soldering skills, uh, from, from school and from working at Qualcomm where we actually had to work with like surface mount components, which was crazier than most audio gear, which is through hole and much bigger. <laughs> we had a Qualcomm was like, it started to look like sand at some point. I mean, it was like, crazy. what is this grain of sand that I'm start, supposed to like solder on this circuit board here? Um, but we had, we had help though, man. When it got to that crazy, there was, yeah. there's the proto lab we called it is like these amazing mostly women mostly from vietnam for whatever reason like worked in this proto lab and they could do anything with these tiny components is amazing that's awesome um yeah how was that experience of working for qualcomm like did you find that it did it actually satisfy that audio craving as well as that engineer side yeah in some ways especially at the beginning um because everything was new and there was there was more to learn of course um, I learned a lot, um, and I got to do some interesting projects. Um, I even helped design, it was like a car phone basically for like the executive branch of the government Oh wow! because Qual one of Qualcomm's businesses was a uh, secure communications. So they had a contract with the government for specialized cell phones that did, you know, encrypted phone calls and that kind of thing. So yeah, I like helped <laughs> develop this like car phone for that was basically used by presidents, and I, I'm probably guessing they replaced it at this point. But I don't know. That That's was kind of cool. interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I heard someone on another interview. I can't remember who it was. Um, was talking about just Apple and like how intense their audio department is there, and like how they're just like constantly like working on trying to make these chips so much better and stronger. And like, you know, ultimately yes. their, their goal is that they want to be able to like 
you know, you can bring a phone to a concert and record like high quality audio with your phone, you know, and like that's crazy to me. But I believe that that's yeah. something that, you know, obviously the there's there's a lot of consumers that are doing that at concerts and making videos and all that stuff. So like you have to you totally. have to be working on that technology and getting it like really dialed in. It was very impressive. I mean, I started in 2001 there and I was there till 2015, right? So I was there for 14 years and we went from very simple, basic kind of stuff like to quality that rivaled what I have in the studio. Like seriously, like as far as signal to noise ratio, as far as, Hmm. you know, all kinds of specs like that we don't talk about that much, but like, you know, what's the, um, the, the ripple of the frequency response, you know, how flat is the frequency response of this converter or whatever, like all that stuff, the specs were really tight. Um, and the, the designers who made these custom chips basically for phones, like were having to like meet these really tight specs and they, they did it. They kept improving it over and over. And so, yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. And it just keeps getting smaller and smaller too, right? Like yes. I think about like our studios are full of these giant racks of gear and like now this technology is just shrinking to like something that can fit in your pocket sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty impressive how good um, the quality is coming out of these phones now, it's at least out of the headphone jack, you know, yeah. where you can connect headphones and you can appreciate the audio. I mean, this, the speaker phones improved too. I definitely worked a lot on that. Like there was... um what we called speaker protection. It was basically like, how do you drive this thing as hard as you possibly can without breaking it? Because what was happening was these tiny speakers, if you drove them really hard, they could overheat and they basically fall apart or you could put so much bass into them that the excursion of the diaphragm would exceed what the speaker could handle and the speaker would break from that. So there was these algorithms that I helped develop um, and they were to like push the speaker to its max temperature and max excursion without going over um to like maximize the loudness of the and the bass response and all that of the speaker so that's crazy there's pretty sophisticated things going on i love hearing about that kind of stuff because it's stuff that a lot of times you don't think about obviously obviously someone's doing the work to do it so um it's very cool and and i also you know i like talking about this kind of stuff because sometimes there's a lot of people listening to this who they have this like deep passion in audio and it's you know, maybe the studio isn't the place that they want to be, but, you know, they want to find other career paths in the industry or, or put that, put their skills to the test. And I think, you know, totally. something like, something like that is definitely a really cool, um, option that a lot of people maybe haven't thought about. So, uh, it's cool to talk about that. Yeah. I think it's very under thought about, um, because it, it's, it is audio and there is a need for it. Um, you know, whether it's Apple or, or Qualcomm or, um, I mean, I almost got a job at some other manufacturer of, of chips that's called analog devices. There's one called Sirius Logic. There's different ones that make, you know, analog to digital converters, digital analog converters, um, operational amplifiers that are specific for audio or, or little, little amplifiers, little class D amplifiers, um, all kinds of things, components basically that would go into various devices and, I mean, it's a good job, <laughs> is all I can say. You come out of uh, as an electrical engineer, you're going to get a job, like pretty much guaranteed, um, and you're going to get paid well. So it's it's very different than like coming out of recording school, where your prospects <laughs> were getting a job, like at a studio, or almost nothing. And like if you go at it, you're yourself, you're gonna, you know, the struggles and, and the low pay and all that. So 
instead you could like do what I did and like immediately get out of school, like get a really high paying job and like, you know, you're still working in audio. It's different though. It's not as creative, but for sure. But, but I think that the path that you took is something that a lot of people are trying to do, which is like, you know, they, they realize that, yeah, you can't necessarily land an amazing job out of recording school. So it's like, you might have to have a different career path to start to like save some money dip your toes into the industry, like, you know, get some clients, that kind of stuff, and just try to try to run them both simultaneously, right? Like build the snowball yeah. of recording clients and, and while you're while you've got a comfy job or whatever. Um, so I think that that is something a lot of people go through. And um, I'm interested in learning a little bit more about that transition for you, because I know that that's something that a lot of people are scared of in itself, too, right? It's like you got this comfy job you got that has like security and all this kind of stuff then to go into this industry that you may have been like there's no money in that you know like originally maybe that was your thought now you're kind of going in that direction so yeah uh, i'm curious to to learn a little bit more about that transition for you and um what that looked like it kind of sounded like you built the studio almost it sounded like you you didn't build it necessarily for yourself at the at first it was kind of for other people to rent out is that would you say that's true i mean i did well, I did build it for myself. I didn't really know about like the. I didn't even think about the fact that so many people might be interested in using it. Mm. Honestly, like I kind of was like, I'm just gonna do this because I wanted to and I could. And and then it was like, oh, okay, other people want to use it. Okay, well, sure, let's see what happens here. Yeah, uh, but the transition was was difficult. I mean, I'll be honest um, because you're right. Like you're. You're working a job like what I was doing. You're getting paid well, um, and and you set up your life around that. You know, um, I bought this property. Like I had a mortgage now. Like you know, I had a certain lifestyle. I suppose that I was used to. Um, not that I lived too extravagantly, but um, yeah, you know, it was a very secure paycheck. It was healthcare, all that stuff. Um, so to like go leave that behind and try to do my own thing was, was scary. And it it was even like to the point where I didn't realize it initially at the time, but I was having a physical effect from the sort of fear of, of that transition as I, as I approached it, as I was like committing to it and coming up to that point where I was going to, you know, tell my boss that I'm going to, I'm going to leave at some point here soon ish. Um, like I was having like, I don't know, trouble breathing sometimes. Oh wow! Like it was affecting me seriously. Hmm. Um, yeah, I had to go to the doctor, just check myself out to see like, is there something else going on? And then they're like, anything stressful going on in your life? And I was like, yeah, I'm about to like leave my steady job and do something crazy. And they're like, yeah, okay, maybe it's just that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so it was, I think. (laughs) But But it sounds like deep in your gut, you kind of always knew all along that that was where you were meant to go. Cause like, I think the idea of like starting a studio building, building a studio is, is a massive endeavor to begin with. And then to, to be doing that while working somewhere else, like obviously your gut was leaning you towards like, I want to do more of the studio side of things. Right. Yes, definitely. My heart was totally in the studio stuff. All my spare time, my, my spare energy, my spare thoughts, were about recording. They weren't about how can I uh, better my skills as, as an electrical engineer. Like I wasn't doing that kind of thing. Where I, I saw some of my colleagues 
more focused on that, where they were like teaching themselves like new skills that they would use at Qualcomm, you know, but I was more <laughs> like teaching myself skills that I would use in the recording studio, which often did not apply to what I was doing at Qualcomm. Yeah, my heart just was in the recording and I just, I was getting a little burned out at the corporate job. I mean, it's, it's tough, you know, like Qualcomm is a big company, you know, these chips were made in the millions and would go into, you know, Samsung phones and LG phones. And, and it was a lot riding on like you doing your part, right. You know, and everyone is really counting on, on you. And I mean, everyone's in the same boat as an engineer Mm -hmm. there. It's like, everyone has to pull their weight and, and try not to miss anything because you, you design a chip, you, you have it manufactured, it comes back, you start testing it. Like anything that is broken to a point where you can't sell it, like has to, means you have to do another revision of the chip. So you can imagine how expensive that would be. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and, and then there's the sort of cycle of, of design and production and that cycle started to get shorter. But the like, the feature set and blah, blah, blah would expand. (laughs) So you're like, okay, we got to do more. We got to put more into this thing, but do it in less time. And that was kind of like how it was going. And it was, it was a lot to keep up with. And, um, yeah, I I just couldn't see myself. Yeah. I couldn't see myself staying on that sort of hamster wheel, if you will. Um, Yeah. So then for you, like, because, because yeah, again, like there's probably a lot of people listening to this in the same situation. Like, did you have, were there like uh, specific goals that you had in mind before completely breaking off from Qualcomm and, and jumping all into the studio? Or, you know, like at what point did you know, like, okay, now is the time? Because I think, you know, knowing when the right time is, is always a challenge for, for most people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, there was this overlap, which is key, I think. I mean, I think if you're going to do this sort of thing, if you can create that overlap, instead of just like being like having the idea of going into recording and then just quitting your job and just like starting like from nothing uh, in the world of recording, like that's not the greatest idea because you're going to like, yeah, be hitting this brick wall of maybe like no income suddenly. Um So instead, like, yeah, I had definitely, like, gotten the studio all built out and started getting things going in here myself and these other engineers, thankfully. And, um, yeah, so I knew knew that it was time when I looked at the calendar and I had, like, a month or two that, like, was really bucked up. And I was like, wow. (laughs) I feel like every day something going on at the studio. This is crazy. Um. So, I mean, I did start off with like kind of offering really low rates at first and stuff like that to get people in the door, you know, um, that helped. Um, but, um, yeah, it, there was this overlap that was, I think, important for me because I, I'm not the type that just like do something drastic. So I, I really needed to feel like I wasn't just, uh, jumping into nothing, that there was something coming in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. How was, uh, I'm curious to know, like, I, I think that the other part of this equation for a lot of people too, is that they may have the audio skills, but then 
there's the business skills of starting a studio as well, right? And like, yeah. you know, it's 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 one thing to be really good at engineering and to know that you can get great results, but another to like know how to keep how to get clients through the door and to like, you know, advertise and market yourself and all that kind of stuff. Um, was that something that you were also kind of working on as you were at Qualcomm, or was it something that like you kind of just took on once you went all in, or like, you know, how did that look like for you? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a work in progress. I I think for sure. Like, I kind of just uh, focus more on the technical side of things, of getting the studio running well and uh, in- improving my, you know, personal abilities as an engineer, uh, which is a never-ending process. Um, but, um, yeah, the business side of things is, is something that I'm focusing on more and more so I can, I can keep this going and, and maybe expand it one day or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I... I that would be good advice, I think, for anyone. One thing that I wish I had done, and I wish I had mentioned this when I was on that the Working Class Audio podcast, um, one thing I wish I had done, track metrics, you know, like track, like, wait, how did, how did this person find me? What genre they work in? And, um, you know, all the kinds of things, you know, how much money did I make from this client, that client? Like, I, I realized at some point that I had, like, no data like <laughs> about how my business was doing. And so only a year and a half ago or so, I started actually like tracking these things. That, that's actually great advice. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, and yeah. obviously it's it's that thing that it's like the measuring stick of your business, right? It lets you know if you're if you're in the right direction or not. Um, yeah. So so you said you, you've been doing it for like the last year and a half or so. What... Um, you gave you gave some examples there, but what are some of the other metrics that you typically pay attention to? How many leads are coming in, you know, and how many of those convert to an actual client? That would be one that I'm interested in. Um, month to month, how does the income look? You know, maybe I can identify some trends of months that are slow, like on in general, and maybe I'll be able to then offer some sort of uh, sales that month or something like that. You know what I mean? To like try to improve it. Um, so that's stuff that I hope to be able to do. And um and yeah, seeing the sort of number of leads and and the conversion I think will help me when I decide to do some sort of advertising. I can maybe get a sense of like, well, if I want to make this much more money, then I need to get like this many more leads because this certain percentage seems to be the conversion that I'm getting and like every client is seems to be worth so much. That'd be another metric is like, well, what's the average value of a client? Um and then, so then I can maybe make some smart decisions about like advertising or whatever and, and try to bring in a certain number of more leads than knowing that they'll probably lead to X amount of more dollars in the end, you know? Yeah. No, I love that. And that, those are all amazing things that people should be paying attention to. It, it's funny because I, I can, I can almost hear people on the other end of this thinking to themselves like, but I don't know how to get leads, you know, like it's like great, great to have leads and to be able to be like, I need more. Yeah. But like, you know, the idea of getting people through the door, especially when you're first getting started, that could be a pretty scary thing as well. So um, I'm curious to learn a little bit about that part of the process for you. Was it just mainly mm-hmm. focus on the local community at first or were you doing any advertising or what did that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done advertising at this point. Um, I imagine that I will at some point. But yeah, for me, it's been... Um, heavily word of mouth which is you know okay that's cool and all but um 
the the other thing that of course is working is a little bit is is social media mostly instagram seems to be the one that converts the most having a good website helps too um and uh i do get a lot of google search you know as far as where the leads are coming from now that i'm tracking these things i can actually see um so so yeah i think improving the website trying to make sure it's the best i mean completely organically i'm trying to make sure it's it's one of the first you know pages at the first page of google if you search like san diego recording studio like i'm i'm somehow there like i don't i don't know if i did everything right to get to make <laughs> that happen but i did something right because it is showing up i think uh for most people on the first page well it kind of makes sense that if you're paying attention to your numbers and you're learning you're probably optimizing things on your website and trying different things out to see, you know, does this work better than another thing? And, you know, maybe a headline or your forums or something like that. I I mean, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth there, but yeah, there's more I can do in that regard. I mean, shout out also, sorry to mention other podcasts, but but the six figure creative podcast is one that I've been, yeah, is one that I've been listening to. And they talk about these kind of things where you can like do a B tests. And I do use, um, Brian hoods, uh, website builder, um, easyfunnels.io. Cool. Um, so shout out to them. Shout out to also um, the software I'm using for my business stuff. It's called Sonido, S-O-N-I-D-O. Um, and it's a it's a little piece of software that uh, is specific for recording studios um, to do a lot of things, you know, from contact management to um, bookings, calendar, you know, um, invoicing and all this kind of metrics that I'm tracking, I'm tracking with Sunido. Um, so yeah, it was, I was looking around for something that like was made for studios and I found them and there's, they're a young company, small company. Um, but they are, um, doing some good stuff and it's working pretty well for me. That's awesome. Yeah. I love hearing about that kind of stuff, like those tools that just make your job easier. And I think that that's something that, you know, it does help with, that transition of like, if you have software that can kind of maybe inform you of the things you you should be paying attention to or, or, or just make mm-hmm. your life a little bit easier as far as like keeping, keeping all of the stats organized, then, you know, it's, it's definitely worth looking into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're liking what I'm saying about metrics here, yeah, it really is helping because all the data is there and you can run these reports Yeah, at the end of the year or whatever, or whenever you want, you know, and you can start to see like, the kinds of things that I'm talking about. I think a lot of people think that like metrics aren't sexy, but it is pretty sexy when you actually see the growth that you got every year, you know, and you can actually like yeah. see the progress that you're making. Like that's, that's what it's all about, right? It's like helping you make those informed decisions so that, yeah, you are seeing growth and you're not just like twiddling your thumbs every day trying to figure out, hey, how do I get someone through the door, you know? Yeah. It gives you a way to, to tell if whatever you're trying is working or not. Totally. Um, so that's that's kind of one of my next steps is to start to try to do something a little more proactive and see what happens. And I'll actually be able to tell if it made a difference because I'll be able to track like, oh, this lead came in through this this ad that I ran. Okay. And I can start to see the impact of those things. So I'm not there yet, but that's that's something that I'm working on. Yeah. No, but that's, I love that. I think it's really great to hear that even for you, it's still a work in progress. And, and I think it... Uh, you've definitely given the listeners a bunch of great ideas as to like what things they should be, should be starting to at least look into if they haven't yet. Right. So mm-hmm. that's great. Cool. Yeah. Um, 
That's awesome. Well, I'd love to transition a little bit from uh, talking from how you got into the studio stuff, but uh, to actually talking about your mixes. And um, I, man, I think you do an amazing job with your mixes. And uh, one thing Thank that you. really stood out to me when I was listening to this, a lot of the stuff on your website was that your mixes have a lot of depth to them. And oh, when yeah. I think of depth, like, I, and sorry, when it comes to your mixes in depth, I don't think that it's depth in the way a lot of people think about depth. Like a lot of people think of depth as like reverb and delay and that kind of stuff. But to me, mm. the depth in your mixes really comes from contrast and from like the differences in volume versus like how bright or dark something is against another instrument. Um, for example, like I, I found that like with your mixes, your vocals tend to sit really nice and clear in front of the mix. They're loud, mm. they're bright, they sound like they're in your face, whereas maybe something like your drums might not be as loud in the mix and they're a little bit darker sounding. So that contrast really does create that depth and, and space in the mix. I don't maybe I'm just overanalyzing your, your mixes, but <laughs> like, you know, is that something that you're consciously doing? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, it's important to me. I, I want my mixes to have that. And then contrast is a big part of it because that's, kind of the only way that you can quote unquote fool the listener into appreciating depth you know because if you put everything in reverb it doesn't really do it it's just it just sounds like it's all far away and washy or whatever mm -hmm. so but by, by creating some things that are you know dry or almost dry and then other things that have reverb or some kind of delay or whatever then you create that contrast then you can appreciate that depth so mm -hmm. that's nothing new I didn't make that up it's just no, but it, but it is interesting because I have heard some people make that argument of like, if you have reverb, you should send everything to the reverb. So it all sounds like it's in the same place. But I agree with you. Like, I think when you do that, mm -hmm. then everything just starts to sound washy and, you know, you don't have yeah. that. Maybe you have the the ambience to it, but it doesn't have that front to back kind of vibe. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it might be the right thing for the song. I mean, I'm the type that um, doesn't believe in any rules. Um, so you know, if if for some reason putting everything in one reverb is getting you the sound that you want, then fine, you know. But yes, I, I think in general, um, the contrast is is key. And uh, also, like I'll mention, like sometimes it's not about having some big reverb, but utilizing some of those programs that are are just little ambience programs and stuff like that. So there's a little space around something, even if it's, uh, you know, you're trying to make the, the thing that is kind of close up to you. But if if you just put a little bit of the, like I have a Burkasti M7 and there's, you know, emulations of those or whatever. Um, there's some great ambience programs in, the, in there. And you just put that little bit of like space that makes it still sound like it's in a, in a place, but it's close. I find that that's helpful. Are you talking about like not necessarily using like the typical types of reverb, like a hall or a plate or something right. like that, but just something that's like more of like a, an actual emulating a space? Like, is that, yeah. is that what you're talking about? And not, not a long space, like a very small space, you know, not like the tail of the reverb is, is very short. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't sound like reverb. It just sounds like when you hear it, you, you can tell it's like goes from being like probably how I sound right now, like on this microphone, like, completely dead right in your ear ear versus like i'm in a room you know mm. what i mean but it's not it's not like a big room with a long decay it's just i'm i'm hearing some ambience around it which is why they call them ambience uh algorithms or whatever yeah um, so sense. i make use of those too um for sure I, i'm with you on that like i think that 
people really abuse reverbs and like it's it's so easy to put a long reverb on something and to be like oh that's cool like it, it, everything mm-hmm. sounds cool through reverb but like yeah. the <laughs> reverb tail can be very problematic in your mix if you like aren't working with the right lengths and 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 more people more often than not i find people just go with too long with the reverb tails and you know doing something yeah. shorter or like you know doing something like what you said there of having something that's more representative of actual ambience in a room like you know that, that's right. going to give you a shorter reverb time i guess for lack of a better way of putting it right so yeah it doesn't sound like reverb it sounds like something else but yeah. it's cool and the other thing that um i'll do cuz i actually have a real plate reverb which helps because they sound amazing um but you eq the the plate okay because it's like by default it's a little bit bassy and stuff like that so um, the way I usually do it is, you know, an aux send from my console through, uh, an EQ and then this like digital delay, uh, even tied DDL 500 just as a pre-delay kind of thing. Um, and then EQ to taste, pull out a lot of low end, a lot of times add some mids maybe, or, you know, and the highs might be cut or might be boosted. Um, so you can EQ reverbs, um, and that's a cool thing to do because that helps you let it sit in the mix better, you know? Totally. Well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about your mixes and how that contrast of bright versus dark, you know, that does create that depth in there. So you can use EQ to achieve the same effect on your effects, reverb, delay, whatever it is, right? So Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll EQ a delay too. Very sure. cool. How, um, as far as creating contrast... Would you say that you are mindful of that in even the recording stage and like your microphone selection and that kind of thing? Or is it something you tend to deal with afterwards in post? Um, I'm mindful of it. Yeah. I mean, I track with some intention behind everything I'm doing. So I'm tracking with outboard gear. Um, I'm committing to EQ um, and that sort of thing, compression. And uh, trying to uh, listen to what's coming in against what's already there. So if we're doing an overdub or whatever, you know, and, and okay, well, I need to maybe, yeah, get rid of a lot of lows on this, this instrument maybe needs to be more about the mids, you know? So I'll just go ahead and like do that kind of thing. So that just makes it easier at mix time because it's already sounding closer to what, you know, it should be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, making space for things is important. For sure. Yeah, I think that there's, there's all, like one of the more common uh, mistakes I see a lot of beginner engineers make is that they they feel like there's one way to record everything, and like mm-hmm. you know you just you just record it as pristine as possible, and then you fix it afterwards. And it's like, well, no, if you know what you want right. it to be, like let's get it right at the stores, right? Yeah, all the great engineers say the same thing. So uh, I just follow <laughs> their lead, and I <laughs> I just like yeah, I'm just going for it. I'm gonna commit some stuff and uh, go with my gut. Absolutely, a lot of it is your gut. You know, you gotta f- trust yourself at some point. And and you'll make mistakes. I totally have made mistakes. I still probably make mistakes sometimes. Um, but you can compensate a lot of times at mixed time, but, you know, kind of opposite EQ of what you did or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would say, like, go for it, you know. Commit yeah. some EQ, some compression, and, and you'll get better as time goes on, uh, those decisions. For sure. You kind of have to make those mistakes early on to, to to learn when you've gone too far or what worked and what didn't, that kind of thing. Yeah. Make those mistakes early in your career. Yeah. <laughs> I did a lot of recording for free or for really cheap at the beginning with just my friends and stuff like that. And 
I mean, they weren't all the greatest recordings. I was still learning and I still am, but like, you know, it was important that I did that at that time because now I'm, I'm a little better and I don't make as many terrible mistakes as I did back then, you know? Um, totally. <laughs> so yeah, my advice is, is to anyone who's starting out on this is record as much as you possibly can, whoever you can. And, and just, yeah, practice all that and just try things. Love it. So when you start a mix, what is your typical mindset going into it? Like, do you have a specific approach to how you deal with all your mixes? Or is it, like you said, just kind of being like trusting your gut and just, just going with whatever comes to your mind? Um, I usually do start with like the rhythm section, you know, the the drums and stuff like that, because I do kind of fall into that uh, category of feeling like there needs to be this like foundation that things sit on. Um, so I'll start with drums and then bring in the bass um, and then whatever like the main instrument is, whether that's guitar or keyboard, piano, whatever, and then the vocal. So that's like the basic song, right? Is like drums, bass, whatever instrument that's the, is the most important instrument, the song and the vocal. And if you can get that like starting to sound like something good, then all the other little things that might be in the production that was recorded, like you can, you can deal with around the most important stuff. That's how I usually approach it. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause then once you have that foundation of the, the core elements of that mix, then you know when to make things darker or brighter or, you know, quieter yeah. or louder or whatever, whatever you need to do to, to make it fit with the rest of the, con- the, the context of the mix. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. All that. What one engineer told me was window dressing. Like he's like, you know, what's, what's the real stuff here and what's the window dressing. So there's the window dressing stuff is like what you can play around with and uh, you find where it fits um, amongst the, the meat of the song, you know? So yeah, totally makes sense. So in your opinion, then what ultimately makes a great mix? Well, I mean, for me, I like things that feel like they're filling up the whole frequency spectrum. You know, they have everything and the lows and the highs and everything in between. And I do like dynamics. Um, So I really hate hearing a mix that's always at the same volume. And, and I also hate hearing a mix that just feels like it's band limited or, like, yeah, like everything's kind of smashed together and it's just like all just coming at you out of the center. Like, you know, that's not to me a very interesting sounding mix. Like I I want, I want the, to feel like there's this, uh, you know, full bandwidth and, and the depth that we talked about before too. And, and, and things that, that an ebb and flow, right. An ebb and flow to, the song and 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 this it's kind of like a journey you know i i feel like that you bring the listener on um and and so part of your job as a mixer is also to um be highlighting the right thing at all times whether that's the vocal which is obvious or when the singer's not singing it could be the guitar part or it could be a little bass run or a drum fill or a little keyboard part or whatever it is and and drawing the tension where it needs to go so your mix continually brings the listener in and never lets them get bored. Um, that's important to me too. I love that. It, it, uh, it reminds me of one of my previous guests, Chris Shaw. He, he had a great 
tip. He, he said very much the same thing of like, you always have to have that focal point at all sections of the mix. And uh, he, he his thing was like, what's the element of the song that people are going to be singing? Like, if, if you told someone to sing the song to you, what is it that they're going to do? Right. Like, and uh, he was saying, like, you know, you take Smells Like Teen Spirit, for example, you got like, right. Like, you kind of just like, there's like these key points in the song where you just like, you know what that focal point is. And like, as long as you can keep that in mind as you're mixing, you can, you know, how to automate your mixes and, and uh, make room for the the important elements. Totally, yeah. And then and then having the rise and fall of the levels in general like helps your mix not be fatiguing. I just hate when I hear something that's just constantly at one volume and it's just you know way too loud and and it's just like ah turn this off. You know, <laughs> having like like things come up and down it, it it draws you in. You know, you're like oh what's happening? Oh okay, it's getting quiet now. Okay. Oh, and then boom, you know, big thing happens and it's exciting and it's, you know, knocks you awake again. So it, I don't know, there's, there's something about dynamics that are important for sure. And, and I think I might've been listening to one of the other guests talk about like, uh, it's okay for something to just like be way too loud, which is like kind of true. Like sometimes like, cause it, it's like, that makes it, it makes it exciting. Totally. So I imagine that automation plays a big role in the mixes that you make. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm not the type to just set one level and then let it be that for the whole time. Yeah, There's automation of levels going on. There's automation of equalization. You know, sometimes it just, something has to change and sound at certain parts. Um, so yeah, I I use automation. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have uh, the mixing board that I did get which is a Neve Genesis, um, and it has a uh, automation package um, for it, which you can control from a plugin, which is amazing. So I just pull up a plugin for every channel I'm using, basically, and um, I can just like I automate any plugin, I can automate the fader level. I can also automate things like turning the aux end on and off. And there's there's four monos and two stereos. Um, I can turn them on and off. I can turn inserts on and off. I can um, control the level of the effects returns. Um, I control I can control the the master fader. I can control um, you know the subgroup levels. Um, so I do that kind of stuff a lot, mm-hmm. which is really cool. And I can actually automate the e- the EQ, which is really amazing. Like an automated cool. analog EQ. Um, just as you would a digital one. That's so amazing. I'll, I'll use yeah, I'll use Pro Tools stuff too, Pro Tools automation as well. It just depends on the situation and what it calls for. Yeah. So as far as creating that excitement and getting away from having that static level in a mix, um, are there any go-to things that you normally think about when it comes to automation time? Like any specific uh, typical moves that I guess you like to you use? I mean, there is the like the feeling that you want to have usually of a chorus lifting up, right? So you can use master fader automation, for instance, um, if it comes down to it. Sometimes the way that the, the things were played, like you don't need to do this. But sometimes the musicians are not playing with dynamics in mind as much as they maybe should have. So they kind of just play it straight from verse to chorus, and it just doesn't lift in the way that that you want it to. 
So you can do, if you need to, master fader automation. You know, bring it down in the verses a little bit and bring it back up at the choruses. Um, that's very powerful. Um, and it can really, a simple way to really, um, you know, make that chorus pop. That's something that, that I'll do, you know. Or maybe there's a moment where it really wants to come down further or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, I guess that's that's creating that contrast, right? It's like quiet, quiet verse, loud chorus. That's it makes it makes it more exciting. Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, the quiet, loud thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's product of being uh, growing up as a teenager in the '90s, and there was a lot of music that had the quiet, loud thing, um, and it was it's awesome. I mean, it's just so it's so simple, but it's effective. Well, yeah, I mean, the quiet loud thing can also be just like arrangement wise. Um, you know, there, there's lots of different factors that can go into it. But I think our ears are kind of conditioned to like hearing a little bit of that kind of excitement, you know. Otherwise, like you said, it's just kind of it's all one level and yeah. you know, it gets boring after a while. You're just like, cool, I've already heard that guitar tone. Nothing's nothing's new. Nothing's exciting popping out at me, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's it's just you start to tune it out. Yeah, I mean, we are, as humans, I think, uh, partially conditioned to look for for something new, right? Like something, we're always looking for something out there. You know, it's the way we evolved, right? Like some danger or something like that. So if you can create those kind of things where you're, you're shifting things on people, it, it keeps them engaged. And, and we're, really, we're really good about tuning things out when they're always the same. I mean, that's how background noise is, right? It's like... Mm-hmm people don't realize that their refrigerator makes a crazy hum because they just get used to it, you know? And then someone else comes in and is like, man, your refrigerator is loud. It's like, really? I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because people get used to those kind of background sounds and just tune them out. Um, So you don't want your music to be background sounds. You don't want it to be like that, you know? You want it to be shifting. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it was interesting because I was checking out your website and you had uh, some really good examples of kind of like, the before and after of a demo versus a mix. And that was definitely one of the things that stood out to me with your mixes is that like, you know, you hear these demos where everything's kind of just in one place and very narrow. And then, yeah, you, your, your mixes would have like this excitement and this whip and, you know, things might be bouncing back around, like back and forth between different speakers and stuff like that. I just, you know, it's mm-hmm. that ear candy that keeps the mix exciting. And yeah, like, that's what you want ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got to make use of everything we can. I mean, I'm still just mixing 100% stereo. I haven't ventured into the Atmos world. But I mean, you can do a lot with with the the left and the right speaker, right? And you can Mm -hmm. make things move around and utilize all the space. Like I I hear too many mixes that are just like too much stuff up the center, you know, and like Mm -hmm. not making use of what is possible um, with, with the two speakers. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm curious to get your take. Are you uh, are you like an LCR kind of guy where everything is like 100% left or right or, or center, or do you, are you okay with like putting things in the, in between? I'm okay with in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I like to find wherever it feels like it's working the best. You know, so makes sense. Yeah, I'll make use of of the in betweens for sure. Cool. And I'll make use of. I've been lately. I've been playing around with these plugins that you know, like this one called like Energy Panner where it just kind of moves things in weird ways depending on like the energy of the track and that's fun. I don't know. One of my favorite plugins is uh Soundtoy's Pan Man 
Like, I love mm-hmm. using that and just, like, you know, have one element in the mix that, like, is just constantly every two bars, like, switching from left to right or just gradually moving. And I think that you can create so much cool excitement out of that, you know, just, or, you know, totally. if you're wearing, wearing headphones, it just, it, yeah, it's exciting. And it, 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 it's different. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I like that one, too. Yeah. How long would you say it takes you to typically finish a mix? It takes basically a day. Yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad, but for me, that's my process ends up being like basically spending a day on it. And, and then there's, you know, there's going to be some sort of revision most likely where I spend some more time on it. But, um, but yeah, I, I basically book out a day, um, to do a mix. And if, if I've done my job right, I've done all the, the sort of mix prep ahead of time. Don't always get to that, but that's the best practice if you can is some other time before the day of your mix, you have it all prepped and ready to go as far as like for me, since I'm mixing on a console, like, you know, routing out the different um, elements to whatever output I want them to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very important step for me to figure out because sometimes there's more tracks than I have channels. So sometimes I have to subgroup things in Pro Tools, you know, and yeah. that takes some thought, you know, to see like, well, what, what should be subgrouped and what shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, Would you, uh, cause, yeah, because I guess if you're working in the analog domain, then definitely, yeah, it is a little bit slower because you're, you know, physically hooking up some stuff sometimes. And, and also, like you said, you might have limitations of your board track counts and that kind of thing. So, you know, you're, mm-hmm. it, it, it will change from, from mix to mix. Um, do you, do you template any of your analog setup? I'll put it this way. Um, in some ways it's a template because I have go-tos, you know, I have, I have kind of a chain that I typically use for like the whole mix. So lately that's been, this like smart C1 compressor, which is like an SSL clone, SSL bus compressor clone. Um, and, and my pair of like the new Paltex, the new company that actually is called Paltech, a pair of those. Um, that's kind of, everything's going through that. So I'll hook that up at the beginning and I'll, I'll usually put like um, the SSL, the, the smart actually uh, in a certain setting that I, I know is a good starting point, you know? Cause I'd like to like, you know, here right away, you know, instead of like putting it on at the end and everything changes, you know, I'd rather mix into it, you know? Um, so I have like those two things and I typically have also been, um, doing some interesting things in parallel with outboard gear. So, um, the Neve Genesis has this, um, what they, they call it IMR. I think it stands for like input mix return or something like that. It's basically like a way to like, do a parallel process on your whole mix and then blend it in underneath the regular mix. It's not wet dry, but it's just like blending in something that you've processed differently of your whole entire mix. Cool. So I've been using a pair of these, um, the company called Animod, and they make this um, compressor. It's in 500 series called the AM660, and it's basically trying to sound like a Fairchild 660. So I have a pair of those that I use with the IMR thing, and I kind of blend in at some point. It's not something I have on right away, but I have it set up and ready to go where I'm going to at some point blend in this like kind of compressed version of the mix underneath, um, which adds a lot of weight and girth to things. Um, And then also, um, you know, at some point I had been using the the black box um, plugin on the entire mix and I liked it so much that I decided to buy the hardware. Um but the hardware doesn't have a wet dry knob, which I thought was important because when I was using it in the plugin form, 
I was using only, you know, 20, 30, 40% or whatever. Um, and I could have used the IMR path that I have, but I kind of was used to the black box being after this AM660 thing that I was using. So I got this other thing that I've been using um, as a blender. It's by TK Audio. Um, it's called the MB1. And now they have a newer version that looks kind of cool. Um, and I've been using that to blend in the, my hardware black box underneath um, the whole mix. So I'll have that like kind of set up and ready to go. Um, and so that's a bit of a sort of template that I've been using lately um, that I kind of hook up you know, at the beginning and, and certain things are, are, you know, like the, the compressor is kind of already in a default state and I'll tweak it if needed, but other things are kind of just ready to go and I'll get to them at some point, not too late into the mix. Cause yeah, I think it's a mistake to like put everything on at the end and then, well, now everything changed, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, I was curious about that. Like I, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about parallel processing on specific instruments, but to actually do it on the full, full mix, um, I know yeah. like Andrew Andrew Sheps has talked about doing that. He calls it, I think, it's, mm-hmm. it's his rear bus that he that he calls it, right? Yes, um, right. And uh, I'm always fascinated by people who do the parallel thing on the entire mix. It's something I've never tried, but it, I'm very curious about it because, um, yeah. So it sounds like you're using it mainly as a way to just kind of add some fullness to the mix overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the black box adds a lot of like kind of uh, energy and excitement, you know, because you're adding harmonics. Um, so, yeah, there's I, th- I feel like the the animods are, are fullness, and the and the the black box is kind of like kind of yeah excitement or something. Yeah. So if you were to solo that uh, that parallel chain, like, is it something that? sounds fairly close to the actual mix or is it would you like say that it's it's a little bit more extreme on its own but like in combination with the the actual mix it works pretty well that's a good question i i I mean i feel like i don't know if i've actually even listened in solo so much especially (laughs) to the animals right (laughs) yeah because it doesn't really matter but um it matters how it works with the whole thing but maybe on the black box because with the the TK audio thing, I can put it all away wet and then I'm hearing just the black box. So I will actually do that like initially and just kind of dial in something that sounds, it sounds like the mix, but more a little crazy because of all the distortion. And, and sometimes I have to back it down a bit, but mm-hmm. because I'm blending it in, in the end, just like similar to the plugin, I would, you know, it's usually fine. Occasionally I'll, I'll discover at some point, I was like, man, I think, I think I did overcooked it, overbaked it a little bit. And I'll have to, you know, <laughs> back things down. But um, that's yeah. cool I like that because yeah when I think of parallel compression or parallel processing in general I, I'm always thinking of like it's almost always an extreme that like on its own to, at least for me like I, you know I, mm-hmm. I tend to go very extreme Could with be. that parallel channel and bring it in just to taste as opposed to like yeah. you know just doubling your ampli- ampli- amplification or whatever you know or, yeah no it's definitely like it's something something's going on with the parallel like it's you know it's not just the mix and barely changed it's definitely yeah yeah that's very it's, cool it's something you wouldn't want to hear all on its own <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> I, love it. I like i like that I, I i have to do it I, i've now heard a couple people talk yeah. about it so i gotta give it a shot love it give it a shot yeah, yeah. there's some stuff i typically use uh in in the plugin world on the whole mix too that i'll i'll put on and have ready to go or or certain things that are just always there like like the universal audio's atr 102 
tape emulation. So that one I'll mix into from the very beginning, you know, and I'll, I'll just start with a certain setting that I think is right probably for the song, you know, cause there's a different tape, tape formats or, um, tape, um, formulations that you can try. There's the GP nine and the four fifty six, and there's some other ones, but mm -hmm. those are the two that I mostly try. And then there's the, like the tape width you can try and the, the calibration settings and whether the transformers in or out and like, yeah, I kind of put it on a, in a setting that I think will probably work for the song, and then I'll come back to that later and maybe see what other settings sound like. But that's usually in there from the beginning. Um, and uh, some other stuff I've been using on the whole mix and the plug-in world, I guess, would be Soothe, actually, a little bit. You know, that's not... I don't put it on initially, but uh, at some point I'll turn that on in a very sort of subtle, very broadband but subtle way. Um, so I, I keep it barely doing anything but it can make a difference it can help you know clear some things up a little bit you know because it's looking for resonances so if there's some mud mm -hmm. or something like that and then you can focus it in on certain areas um and i've become a fan of that golfos golfos plugin too that you may be familiar from familiar with from sound theory i think it's called company and that one's um that one's been interesting to to put on at some point too and that one's i i find it to be like a like a demasker, if you will. Interesting. You know how you, you have things that step on each other. I mean, it's, it's that's a tricky thing to figure out as a mixer is like what is stepping on what. Um, and I do my best to, you know, figure that out as I go. But like sometimes, is inevitably there's certain things that are still doing that. But once I kind of get golf off set up right, I find like it's it's clearing up some of that and demasking things and and things just sound more clear very cool yeah i love it yeah it yeah. sounds like you're you're mixing into a kind of a chain that is, is obviously shaping the the tone of your entire mix right from the beginning mm -hmm. so um yeah I, I, yeah I i i personally mix that way as well so you know it's always i always like hearing other people's approach to it as well and um yeah. as far as the poltex go like you, you mentioned using those um is there anything specific that you like to do with the poltex yeah um so usually um, I will do some boosting in the, the top end, maybe the 12 kilohertz or the 10 kilohertz setting um, with with the bandwidth as wide as possible. Um, and because of that boosting, sometimes I find that I actually need to cut the very top end. So I'll, I'll set that attenuator at 20 kilohertz and I might cut a tiny bit of 20K out. So what I did you know, at 12K doesn't make the stuff way up top too much. Um, and then I'll do the thing on the low end with a low frequency. Like, And sometimes I like the sound of the 30 hertz on the one I have um, with some boost there, but also possibly cut at the same time, that whole trick, um, which just kind of focuses it a little bit better. Um, so that can add some some weight to things too. Very cool. That's that's exactly how I use it on my own mixes as well. It's like kind of creating that cool. smiley face curve to your mixes before yeah. you even start, right? Uh, yeah, I like it. Because otherwise you're just trying to boost the top end on everything and like hope that you get it right. Yeah, I don't do it the first thing, but I, you know, after I get those basic, the basic song going, then then I'll I'll see. Okay, let me try the Poltec and I'll I'll get that sounding how I think it should sound, and then then I just kind of mostly leave it there yeah. unless I feel like I need to come back to it. You know? Yeah, totally. How do, you, how do you know then when you're done with your mixes? 
For me, it would be when I can listen through and nothing's really bug- bugging me anymore. You know? And when, 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 yeah, then it feels like it's done. And also, like, when I get around to about midnight, <laughs> I'm pretty tired. <laughs> I'm pretty tired. My ears are about toast. And, uh, I know I just, I need to call it even if, even if there maybe is something that's still like not, I'm not totally sure about at that point, I, I just need to start printing the mix and sending it over to the client. And then I, I know there's probably going to be a round of revisions anyways. So, um, if there's something that's personally bugging me, I can address it then, you know? Yeah. But I, I like that approach too. It's like sometimes Sometimes like it's not a matter of like being a hundred percent satisfied with the mix. Like you, you might be like really, really close, but you have to send it off to the client anyway, just to like see if you're yeah. like they may have a completely different vision for the mix. So, you know, you, you gotta do that check every now and then rather than like spend yes. the extra time just trying to get that extra five percent that maybe in the end is not worth not, not gonna make right. a difference to the customer, right? And to that point, what I've learned, because I've, I've run into that before where I've, I've done all this work and then I send it over and they're like, that's not at all what we wanted. I'm like, oh my God, I just spent a whole day. So what I've, <laughs> what I've uh, started to do is, you know, send over something. Around, for me, it's around five o'clock. Yeah. I'll send over, like, this is where I'm at with it. And then I take a long break um, because I, I've got a wife and a kid. So like I go home, I, you know, have dinner with them. I help out with the nighttime routine. It, you know, that could be till like nine o'clock sometimes. So like there's this long break where the client has my mix in progress, as I call it, and they can send me some notes on that. And then I'll come back like at nine and I'll be like, okay, I'll do their tweaks and then I'll do whatever else I want to do. And then, yeah, like I said, by about midnight, I'm like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) I should probably call it quits now. And hopefully I have it in a place that I feel good about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm totally the uh, same way. It's like, yeah, you just got to get that, uh, take that break, reset, and let the customer tell you if they're, if you're in the right ballpark with it or not, because yeah, you yeah. might be done. <laughs> yeah, it might be good. There might be just certain things they want tweaked and great. Now you did that before you sent the official mix one and maybe, maybe there won't even be a revision now. Like yeah. maybe you got it perfect for them, for sure. you know, because you did, you took that time to send them this mix in progress i was scared to do that before because i was like oh i don't want to show them something that's not like a hundred percent but like i said i learned over time it's better to do that um and and say it's a mix in progress like i'm not done here but you know this is you know a time a point where you can give me some feedback totally it's uh it's better to uh maybe set the bar set the expectation lower and then over impress them you know like not you know then hey that's a good thing Right? <laughs> yeah, because I will come back at nine and, and with fresh ears and I'll hear new stuff and I'll do some other stuff. And my mix that I'm done with at the end of the day is significantly better, I think, than the one that, that I had at five o'clock usually. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Right on, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and your studio, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, yeah, you could go to the website, which is uh, com, or you can check me out on Instagram this ad verified recording. Um, that's the social media I'm most active on. Um, so I would probably do that one. Um, so yeah, those two places would be great ways to find out more. Awesome. Well, right. Thank you again for, for taking the time to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. 
No problem. Thank you so much for having me. So that was my interview with Roy Silverstein, and I thought he shared some really awesome advice in terms of how to break free of the golden handcuffs of a comfy day job and how to get into audio comfortably knowing that you can actually make a proper living from it. And I know that it is a scary thing to jump all in and to believe in yourself sometimes when it comes to pursuing your passions. And let's face it, the audio industry is not an easy industry. And so because of that, there are a lot of people that will tell you you're destined to fail and, you know, it's not a good industry to be in, all this kind of stuff. It can very much be doom and gloom. But I think if you set yourself up properly, and if you follow a lot of the advice that Roy shared here today, I think that you're going to have a much easier time and you're going to feel way more comfortable getting into this. You know, I've definitely been there myself. I've definitely jumped all in at one point and realized, oh, wait a minute, I don't know how to market myself. I don't know how to run my business. And it's scary. I failed a couple times doing this myself. But once I actually started having a business-minded approach to my career, that's when everything changed. And a lot of it had to do with these little metrics that Roy was talking about here today. So, you know, definitely if you're someone who is thinking about making this transition and you're not sure what to do, definitely go back into this episode and listen to all the advice that Roy shared here because there's a lot of great tips. And I think that if you do that, you're going to have a much easier time. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode, and I hope that you got a lot of great tips out of that. And if you did enjoy it, make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for tips on how to create pro-sounding recordings from your home studio. If you're not sure about the process, or you're not confident in the tools, or you're just not sure if you're taking the right steps with your own productions then there are a lot of great resources on that website designed to help you out. So definitely make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com. And one resource that I would say is a great place to start is my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And in that book, I break down the process of mixing step by step so that you know exactly what to do, what steps to take, what to listen for, all that kind of stuff. So make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.